You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. When my brother-in-law was dating my dear sister, he came to our home in California to meet the family. I might just add in passing, fortunately for my sister's prospects, I was not there. (laughs) But he came and he spent three or four days. The first night, he slept in the living room on a a cot. In fact, every night he slept in the living room on a cot. But the first night, he couldn't sleep. And comes the morning, my family are all gathered around the breakfast table, full of cheer, enthusiasm, naturally pushing my sister on him. And he's grumpy. He couldn't sleep. And my mother inquires, why couldn't you sleep? Because in our living room, we had a wind-up clock, and it ticked all night, kept him up. Now, I say that to say that we did not hear that clock. That clock had been ticking in that living room all my life. My parents got it as a wedding present. We had stopped hearing that clock, which so disturbed my future, and I'm glad to say present brother-in-law. And it occurred to me while I was preparing for today's chapel that there are some things in our religious experience that are so familiar, so safe, so predictable, that they are like a clock ticking. After the first exposure to it, the charm of a wind-up clock wears off and you no longer hear it. It doesn't distress you. Even if it's the kind of clock that rings on the hour, after a day or two or a week, You'll not, you won't hear the ringing. It'll bother new people who have never heard it before. They'll think it's quite a cunning device there, ringing every quarter hour. But you will no longer hear it. I have one in my living room, and I have not heard it for years. It rings every quarter hour, and I don't hear it. And it occurred to me, and it occurs to me now this morning, that there are all kinds of things that you have heard and I have heard over many, many years in this chapel. I've been here 15 long, arduous, but fun-filled years. (laughs) And I've heard it all from this pulpit. So I thought, I will simply tell you, and I haven't had long enough to prepare this message to be cunning. Now, it's not the chapel committee or Dr. Moore's fault. I had plenty of advance notice. It's nobody's fault but my own. The difficulty was uh, my schedule, through reasons that are of no interest at all except to tell you this, became crowded in the last week. And so I really just had last evening to prepare, which is not enough time for a message of this importance. It's not enough time. So that I haven't had time to be cunning. I haven't had time to be clever or indirect. Alas, I have to fall back on the truth. (laughs) All else fails, tell the truth. So I want to share this morning the truth as I see it about our situation as nearly openly, as nearly honestly, as nearly completely, in as near a pure form as I'm capable of doing in as much time as anybody deserves. I was about to complain about the time, but I have more time than most people to speak. My text is... Psalms 10:16 The Lord is king forever and ever. 
And I want to, first of all, middle of all, and last of all, give honor and glory to the Holy Spirit, who has guided already in the service to this extent that Miss Wright's beautiful introductory solo was on the theme of the majesty of God, my very theme, and of which she could have known nothing because the music and the um, songs, even the hymns and the special music are not coordinated simply because of the difficulties, the logistics of it. So my theme is the majesty of God. The Lord is king forever and ever. Our Lord in heaven and in our lives and in this sanctuary this morning is a sovereign, by which I mean he has no peers and no superiors. He is a great king, and he can do great things. Thou art coming to a king, great petitions with thee bring. I want you to imagine yourself in the following situation, which I will graphically describe. Imagine that you live in a monarchical state, which would be no trick. You could move now to England if you wanted to live this out in reality, or Luxembourg, or Liechtenstein, or Holland, or Arabia. Imagine you lived in a monarchical state, at some time in the history of this state, you can present petitions to the reigning monarch, if you can get to him or her, with a fair prospect these petitions will be acted upon favorably. Now this is still actually the case in um, the Arab monarchies. If you can reach the uh, emir or the sheikh, you have a very good chance, an excellent chance, of having whatever it is you wish granted, because they're very paternalistic, those uh, Arabic monarchies. And it was the state, it was the case in England, say, in the 18th century. So imagine that you live in one of these countries at some time in history, as I've described it, and the monarch is going to make a state visit to some place in the capital city, and you know where this place is, so you arrange to be where the monarch will be. You have to get there early, big crowds, waving little flags, trumpets blare, and the monarch pulls into the street in his great carriage pulled by eight horses, and there are people, there are mounted soldiers, and there's a band, and there are people playing all kinds of instruments. This is the big moment. The king rolls into the scene, and you throw yourself in front of the carriage, causing a traffic jam. <laughs> the driver of the carriage pulls it up short. The king tumbles off of his seat. Two of the soldiers fall off their horses. The crowd is horrified. They are aghast. They drop their flags. They are wide-eyed with amazement. The herald trumpet player has a bruised lip. He glares at you. <laughs> King picks himself off the floor of the carriage. He looks out the window. You tremblingly approach the window of the carriage. The entire scene, silent, expectant. King looks at you. You say, bowing low, your majesty. I have a petition. Well, says the king, at such an expense to yourself to have acquired the boon of my undivided attention, what is your request? The crowd is alive with expectation. Well, your majesty, here it is. A problem that has burdened me for weeks and months, and I seek in you, sire, the sovereign cure. Yes, yes, what is it? The potato chips in the cafeteria are stale. <laughs> the radiator in my room bangs. Once I went to the library during Holiness Conference, all forgetting, 
when I should have been in Hughes, I went to the library and it was locked. I was really ticked it ruined my week. Can you help me, Majesty? How would you respond if you were a reigning monarch? The whole parade in shambles because somebody doesn't like stale potato chips. <laughs> Does it not occur that we sometimes see God in that light? A sovereign without peer whom we insultingly, routinely, shamelessly insult by underestimating it. Does Satan underestimate our sovereign Lord God? No. Do we underestimate our sovereign Lord God? Confident, often, without shame, without hesitation. God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. His kingdom endures forever. It is the kingdom of the soul. It is the kingdom of fellowship. It is the kingdom of eternal life. There is nothing God cannot do for us and in us and through us spiritually. There is no miracle too great, not only that he cannot work it, there is no miracle too great that he does not yearn to work it. There is no miracle too great in our souls that he did not deliberately and knowing us personally, individually, give his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die an agony that he could work it in our souls. He is our sovereign Lord. He is also, he is also the God of little things. There's nothing he doesn't care about because he cares about us. Peter tells us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And the dear old Bible, the dear friendly companion Bible, the book of books, all full of little things. Seeds, honey, fish, boats, dust, taxes, policemen, water, blood, corn. The Bible is full of little people. Luckily for us, how about one who should be an all-time favorite? How about sleepyhead Eutychus, the 20th chapter of Acts? You all know the story. He's in Troy. Fell asleep and fell out of the window. <laughs> I just thought of something. <laughs> just came to me here this morning in this August assemblage. If we were Roman Catholic, <laughs> we could dedicate... Hughes Auditorium to St. Eutychus. <laughs> the Cathedral of St. Eutychus. Doesn't that have a nice ring to it? And I could be the high priest. <laughs> Dear little sleepy Eutychus. How about homesick Epaphroditus? Little story in the book of Philippians, which has become recently my favorite book in the Bible. It is my current favorite. Homesick Epaphroditus. Demas who loved the world, the crooked and unfortunately for his reputation immortalized coppersmith Alexander. Watch out for Alexander, says Paul. He's a cheat. The Bible is full of little things and little people. But God's holy religion in our life doesn't begin with little things. It begins with the greatest and best and most beautiful and eternal things and works itself down. It's deductive. 
It's deductive. It begins with first principles and ends with particular examples. Starts big and works down. God does care about little things. He cares about everything in our life. But the completeness of his care on every level and in every regard is part and proof of his sovereignty. So that you can pray for love. You can pray for love with joy and with confidence. Then you pray for love for the individual person whom you do not like. And doubtless with good reason. Then you pray for love for the individual person whom you do not like with good reason in the individual situation. Have you ever noticed, have you, something else just occurred to me, have you ever noticed that evangelicals have their own language or their own use? We evangelicals, I don't want to disassociate myself. Evangelicals have their own language or we use the regular language that everybody else knows, but we have different meanings. Classic example, the word situation. I don't know what it means in the dictionary, I'd have to look it up, but I know what it means to Christians, it means a nasty mess. If you ever heard people say, well, I've got a situation at home. Everybody has situations at home. <laughs> what they mean is, I've got a nasty mess at home. Or I've got a, I've, I've, listen, I need prayer, I've got a situation with my roommate, so does everybody else. No, they don't mean situation, they mean they're in a real pickle. You first pray for love, enjoy in confidence, then you pray for love in the case of an individual you don't like, then you pray for uh, love in an individual situation. Our king is sovereign and all-powerful. Our king is sovereign over time. He is king forever. He is sovereign over the past. There is nothing the Bible tells us, or asks us rhetorically, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And lists all the things that can't. The past certainly cannot. Nothing in the past can stand between you and God's fullest love and glory for you because the past exists only in your mind. The past is simply a word for your recollection. It has no more force over you than you choose voluntarily to let it. Of all things I say, I want you to remember this. Avoid the sin and heresy, because it's both sinful and heretical. Avoid the sin and heresy of despair. Despair is that condition defined by dear old Dr. Johnson in the 18th century and defined by the Oxford English Dictionary right now contemporaneously. Despair is that condition of the mind and soul which experiences a complete want of hope. Despair is not just discouragement. Despair is a complete absence of hope. It's sinful to indulge in despair and it's a heresy to indulge in despair, to abandon hope, to suppose that your past is sovereign over your present and more ridic ridiculous, sovereign over God's power, is to challenge that power. It is to say, what I've done and what I've been is too bad and too awful, too reprehensible, too nasty, too shameful for God to cure. God is sovereign over the past. God is sovereign over the present. He is king now. He is king everywhere. He is sovereign over the future. Not only do you dare not abandon hope, you should embrace hope. God is sovereign over the future. He is king now. He is king everywhere. He is king forever. Uh, during spring vacation, I said, uh, because I was trying to think how many days ago it was. It seems like months. It's only three days or four days. During spring vacation, I was at a conference, and the speaker, uh, the first day of the conference, was a motivator. 
Now, I did not realize until whatever that was a week ago or 10 days ago, I did not realize on this planet, so narrow, so naive, so circumscribed has my life been, I did not realize till 10 days ago there were such things as professional motivators. People who make what I gathered from the way he was dressed a very handsome living, telling other people to cheer up. Something to cash in on class if you don't get that job teaching. Motivator. I wasn't listening to the man, to tell you the honest truth, because he didn't seem to me to have very much to say to the particular persons he was talking to who have a very difficult life, a life full of frustration and moral pain, physical pain, spiritual pain, a very difficult ministry the persons he was speaking to have. And he was light and obviously a young and an ex-athlete, uh, very fashionable. And he seemed to me facile. He seemed to me uh, easy. And so I committed the generic fallacy, which I've warned some of you against in class. I associated the, the message with my distaste for the speaker. Classic fallacy, always avoid that. And particularly, I may add, you can avoid it right now. You misapply that right now. I mistook the, the message for the medium and I wasn't listening. But then he said something which transformed his whole ministry to me and transformed the whole day. I listened to every word he said after that. He said, the most important thing in motivation, I heard this providentially, the most important thing in motivation, said he, is starting over. Like a flash, it came to me that Christianity is the religion of new beginnings. And I would like to ask you rhetorically, what message do we need more at Asbury College right now than the message of beginning again? What message do we need more this morning coming off of what, for me at least, and for my colleagues, and I think for many students, has been, if not an outright difficult 15 months, certainly one filled with a certain amount of uncertainty, a certain amount of anxiety coming off of that. And on the eve of what I think is going to be one of the best holiness conferences we've ever had, and I think that because I have such confidence, certainly in the work of the Holy Spirit, but in his particular message this coming week, Dr. Charles Cochran, one of the great old line father figures and great preachers of the holiness tradition. And I urge you to come to that conference. What message is better? What message is more relevant? What message could mean more to us right now at Asbury College than that Christianity is the religion of new beginnings? God is a king who commands us. He commands us to love him with every fiber of our being and to love one another. Loving one another is the theme of the best-known passages in the New Testament. It is the theme of the book of Philippians, which I've already mentioned in passing, has become recently one of my favorites. The book of Philippians tells us how we should love one another. We should be patient. Have you ever been, maybe not, this may be a situation I've only experienced, but have you ever been in an awkward or tense or unpleasant situation and had the fleeting suspicion, terror really, more than a suspicion, the fleeting thought bristling with horrible implications, that the unpleasant situation you were in was never going to end? Have you ever been in a traffic jam? You're in McDonald's in Nicholasville, the hangout, and you want to turn left to go into Lexington, to Fayette Mall, another hangout. And you've discovered in Nicholasville you cannot ever turn left against traffic because Nicholasville, and in fact every point in Kentucky, has been cleverly designed <laughs> in Traffic Jam Central Headquarters, probably in the lower regions, commanded by Satan. <laughs> Kentucky seems to be unique 
and its capacity for producing traffic jams out of nothing. <laughs> I give you as an example, Wilmore. A town of 17 permanent residents, which has traffic jams. So you're in a traffic jam, and you have that fleeting thought that it's never going to end. I'm going to be here forever. I'm going to be here for 25 minutes. I can't stand it. Honk, honk, stomp, crash. <laughs> you're not going to be there 20 minutes. You're going to be there an extra 15 or 20 seconds, maybe a minute at the outside. Be patient with life. Keep things in perspective. Be tolerant. Be tolerant of other people, not because they're better than you are. They're not. Not because their motives are better than yours, but because their motives are no worse than yours. And their motives are no worse than yours for the same reason that your motives are shabby and tacky and mean. They're lonely. They're frustrated. They're depressed. They're worried about the future. They're worried about the present. They are worried about the past. Be tolerant of one another. Be forgiving. I don't say forgive. I think the message of the New Testament, and it's my great regret that I do not know Greek, because I believe, I, I, I skate on thin ice here, but I believe the Greek sustains this idea that the, the uh, injunction in Holy Scripture to forgive is not intended to tell us to forgive individual acts. That's why our Lord said, 70 times 7, just some great number. I believe the Greek would sustain this, that the Bible tells us, the Holy Spirit tells us in the Scripture many places not to forgive individual acts, but to be forgiving, to adopt a forgiving mentality. It's not the same thing as acquiescing in some kind of shabby compromise in sin. It's not the same thing as compromising your witness. It's not the same thing as approving all that other people do. But be forgiving. Adopt a forgiving and tolerant and waiting and, ex and uh, accepting attitude. Be very polite. Open the door of life. Rise and shake hands with life. Bow to life. Smile at life. Defer to life. Smile out on a dark and broken and bruised and sad world. I've often thought that the absence of good manners, not primarily or not exclusively or primarily in this community, but the absence of good manners in society, of which this community is, alas, no very profound exception in this regard, the absence of good manners is the hardest of all civilized amenities to bear the loss of because good manners are so easy to achieve. I can understand other lands. I can understand other absences of great expressions of love, but certainly good manners. The easiest of all amenities to achieve, and therefore the hardest to lose, the, the most grievous to bear. Be polite. Do not wrestle with life. Do not seize upon your little corner that comes to hand and prove that you're the master of it. The Bible says, I think I'm right, very little about material things except that God promises to meet our needs. It says very little about the physical, except that God is pleased to intervene in his own time so as to lead people into that confrontation with his sovereign power that will transform the spiritual. God commands us to love to love him and to love one another. God, the King, the Sovereign forever, compels us to love. Let us be by love compelled at Asbury College. Let us be compelled by 
the example of God, God's love for us. Let's be compelled by the example, by the fact, the very fact of His love for us. John tells us, brethren, if God so loved us, we should love one another. The King compels us to love. The King empowers us to love. Happy news. There's nothing abstract. There's nothing otherworldly. There's nothing merely principled, or in this narrow sense, merely philosophical about the Christian religion. It comes in word, but the Bible assures us in many places it comes in power. God the Holy Spirit, the Sovereign Lord, empowers us to be what we want to seem. Now think about that. God the Holy Spirit empowers us to be what we want to seem. Socrates said, be what you want to seem. And that slimy little Iago in Othello. Men should be what they seem. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be what we want to seem. Now let me ask you another rhetorical question. Why in the world is it important for you to be at Asbury College right now? Why is it important for me or my colleagues to be at Asbury College right now? Was it ever important? Is it now important? Will it ever be important for you to be at Asbury College right now, this morning? What is there about Asbury College that's worthy of notice? More than you think, less than you think. This is a place in which you have the opportunity to develop through every technique and resource that will, would be available to you in any institution of higher learning, but animated, compounded, enlivened, directed, empowered by the precious, great, extra, all-sovereign ingredient of the Holy Spirit, you have the opportunity to develop skills, habits, knowledge, which you will find indispensable in your place in the kingdom afterwards. This is a place where you are morally enjoined, not by the rules, not by the faculty, but by your conscience enlivened by the Holy Spirit, you are compelled to do your very best. But never, never for its own sake. This is a place where you learn to accept God's love. You don't acknowledge God's love merely. That's only the first step. You learn to accept God's love. And you learn, after accepting God's love, to love Him, to love the world, and to love yourselves. It would be a great blasphemy. It would be a heresy as classical and as destructive and as liable to fill Satan with joy as the heresy of despair for you to take a lower, harsher view of yourselves than Christ takes of you. Christ's love, experienced and shared, is the sovereign cure for self-hate, for self-deprecation, even for self-doubt. God's Holy Spirit, accepted and shared. We love Him, we love each other, we love the world. God commands, compels, empowers, and He does it all now. Not yesterday, which has gone beyond recall, and not tomorrow, which exists like yesterday, only in your mind. He does it now. I want to close with a story, perfectly true story, which I think illustrates this. 
1936, the King of England, the uncle of the present reigning monarch, his name was Edward VIII, abdicated the throne. He had reigned from January to December of that year, 1936, and he abdicated because he wished to marry a divorced woman, which the parliament would not allow. And so, to maintain the dynasty, he very begrudgingly, and with his usual bad spirit, abdicated and went off to the south of France to pout. His younger brother, the Duke of York, who was a gentle, kind-hearted person who had a slight stutter and had never expected to be the king, and was not trained to be the king, was asked to take the throne without hardly any notice. It was a great burden for the man. He was unsure of himself, of course. And his older brother, Edward, the abdicated one, was very fashionable, polished, and he's off in the south of France, surrounded by his adoring friends. The number, of course, had reduced some when he left the throne, but still a few hangers-on. So he's in the south of France. The king, the new king, George VI, Queen Elizabeth's father, telephoned the south of France in early January of 1937 to ask the, the abdicated monarch a question about the affairs at the palace. He was sitting with his friends on the veranda of the great hotel there, and uh, he, the phone came and the servant came and said, um, Your Highness, it's the king from London. He wishes to speak to you. And it's a perfectly true story. The uh, Duke of Windsor then said to the servant, Tell him I'll call back. I'm busy now. The servant went to the telephone and said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Your Majesty, but uh, His Highness will call you back. Silence. King George VI said to him, tell him to come to the phone now. I am the king now, not him. Let me close with this scripture. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.